You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Maybe new regulation isn't what's needed, but maybe the market through third-party certification, through other mechanisms, can really help hold itself accountable to doing the right thing and creating what we really want to create. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben covers an eye-opening footnote from a Ninth Circuit court case about Internet content collection. I've got the tally of the number of warrantless searches the FBI conducted last year. And later in the show, my conversation with Patrick Sullivan. He's from Align Compliance and Security. We're discussing the privacy implications of the attempts to modernize HIPAA. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-year-plus partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. All right, Ben, let's jump into our stories here. Uh, why don't you start things off for us? Uh, you are, uh, you're, you're, you're in character this week, aren't you? You're I right. am. <laughs> I called this on Twitter a cur bomb because okay. it was a story alerted to me by my uh, imaginary friend. Well, he's he's a real person, but <laughs> right. our friendship is imaginary. Right, and that's right. <laughs> Professor Oren Kerr yeah. uh, from the University of California, Berkeley. Mm. And he alerted me to kind of a throwaway provision in a Ninth Circuit case. So that's the federal... Uh, appeals court located on the West Coast. The case is U.S. versus Rose now. Hmm. It's a case about an individual who was arrested returning from the Philippines where he engaged in sex tourism uh, with minors. And he arranged these meetups with these minors through online messaging services Mm -hmm. by Yahoo and Facebook. Hmm. Uh, And so the questions raised in this case were Fourth Amendment questions about whether he had a reasonable expectation of privacy in those communications. Hmm. The people who are briefing this case on actually both sides of the divide raised a whole bunch of potential issues. Sometimes lawyers are going to do that in a case. You don't know which issue is going to be the one that the members of the panel glom onto for the decision. So you write a brief kind of covering all of your bases. Hmm. And one issue that was mentioned in the briefs is whether internet contact, uh, content preservation is or is not a seizure under the Fourth Amendment. Hmm. So the Fourth Amendment prohibits unreasonable searches and seizures. Right. Uh, As the court said in this passage in this case, a seizure of property requires some meaningful uh, interference by the government with an individual's possessory interest in his property. Hmm. Um, Here, where the preservation requests themselves, which only apply retrospectively, 
That didn't interfere with the defendant's possessory interests in his own digital data because they did not prevent Rosenau, the defendant, from accessing his own account, nor did they provide the government with access to any of Rosenau's uh, digital information without further legal process. Hmm. Furthermore, he consented to uh, the internet service, pro- the messaging service providers honoring preservation requests from law enforcement. Okay. So this is— Give it to me in plain English, Ben. Yeah. <laughs> Pack it for me. So I, I realize I just spoke a lot of legalese there. What this means is the preservation of internet content as part of a government's— uh, some sort of government inquiry would not count as a seizure of property for Fourth Amendment purposes. Hmm. Therefore, a person doesn't have any Fourth Amendment interest in the seized information. Hmm. So to put this in in more layman's terms, the internet content, according to this provision, is not yours. You have put it out into the ether of the internet uh, for a couple of reasons. One, you've agreed to the terms of service, uh, which explicitly say that the government can request this information from service providers. Mm -hmm. So that's one way in which uh, you no longer have a possessory interest. Um, But also because the fact that this information gets into government hands doesn't affect the defendant's current possessory interests in his data. Uh, That person, Rosenau, is still able to access his own account. So he's not being deprived of uh, getting access to his own online communications. Hmm. So uh, that so so help me understand. So that is the that is how they're parsing the word seizure. That seizure means taking something away from someone. Exactly. So huh. here they're saying his electronic communications haven't been taken away from him because he can still access them. Interesting. Uh, so what Professor Kerr notes about this case, which I think is particularly apt, is this was sort of a throwaway sentence in a much longer case. They spent much more time on different Fourth Amendment issues, different legal theories, but I don't think they, the uh, three-judge panel, nor the parties recognized the significance of this type of holding. Uh, and what Professor Kerr says is that this is a nightmare for our legal system and for judges and attorneys across the country. You have a major issue hmm. like whether seizures of online communications count as seizures under the Fourth Amendment. It's raised in passing by counsel. Um, a federal court of appeals doesn't really know what it does, uh, has never really confronted this problem in the past. Um, but they decide the issue anyway without having seemingly considered it. It wasn't something that was raised, for example, at great length in, in oral arguments. Uh, and now that becomes precedent in the Ninth Circuit, and it becomes persuasive authority in other circuits. Hmm. I think what Professor Kerr is saying is if there was a debate on the merits of this issue and there had been dueling law review articles about whether this type of content collection uh, would count as a seizure for Fourth Amendment purposes. And it was adjudicated at oral arguments. If the counsels, you know, were arguing about it and the judges were asking questions, then, you know, even if you don't like the result, the process uh, still would have been sound. But what actually happened here is the Ninth Circuit, perhaps inadvertently, came down with a decision that has major precedential value without going through the fullest consideration. Hmm. Uh, so I think that's what's what's problematic here. Is there any way to backpedal on this? 
So there are a couple ways to to backpedal on it. One is other circuits are not bound by this. So if you get mm. from any of the other federal – if you get a decision from any of the other federal circuits, they could explicitly critique what the Ninth Circuit has said and they could say – our reading of relevant Fourth Amendment case law, relevant statutes like the Stored Communications Act, we go the other way on this. And eventually, if that dispute becomes interesting enough for uh, the Supreme Court, they could take it up uh, mm. and could reverse the Ninth Circuit's argument. And this is certainly something that rose now. If he wanted to petition to the Supreme Court, he could. I mean, he could certainly appeal this case. The Supreme Court has no obligation to take it. And I don't think they would take it unless there is some sort of split among uh, federal circuits. Mm. There is sort of another out here. If you read the opening merits brief from the defendants, it's not at all clear that he raised the issue. He actually addressed it in his uh, a reply brief, uh, which is not his original case brief. Who's he? Uh, the defendant. Okay. Sorry. More yeah. accurately, the defendant's attorney. Yeah. And under precedent in that circuit, uh, if you don't raise the issue in uh, his in your opening merits brief, then that's not an issue that could be adjudicated. So he could try and get reconsideration in front of the full Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals mm. on Bonk. Um, it's a large uh, it's a large court. There's something like 20 judges on the Ninth Circuit. Mm. Uh, so that could take a long time. There's certainly no guarantee that they would reconsider the case on Bonk. Um, but that is certainly an option, and they might decide that regardless of where you come down on the merits, you can't make a binding decision when it wasn't raised by the defendant uh, in the original merit brief. Hmm. Uh, so that would be kind of a procedural way out. Is there or would there ever be any acknowledgement from the Ninth Circuit Court that uh – oh, hey, you know, we didn't mean to make to, to have something with such implications happen in such an offhanded way. Judges generally don't do that. I mean, they like to think of themselves as sages. They like to think we have the best law clerks imaginable. They comb through every relevant legal issue. You know, it would be kind of embarrassing for a judge to admit that mm. they got the law wrong because they just weren't <laughs> paying attention closely right. enough. Right. Uh, and this is— this has happened at various points throughout our history where major judicial doctrines that end up developing over decades, centuries, originate from a throwaway line in a case. I mean, the most famous one from my perspective is uh, what was called Caroline Products Footnote 4. It was a footnote in a 1930s decision about when certain laws merit stricter scrutiny from courts. And it hmm. said— Laws that either deal with fundamental rights, like those rights listed in the Bill of Rights, or those that affect discrete and insular minorities, those types of decisions merit strict scrutiny in our judicial system. Hmm. That was written by a law clerk in a footnote, and that became the standard of jurisprudence in equal protection cases and all different types of constitutional cases for the next 90 years uh, hmm. since it was decided. And again, that was a footnote mm -hmm. written by an enterprising law clerk. So sometimes <laughs> this, this happens. Yeah. Uh, it's it's almost like an accident of history. Uh, but it, it does go to – I think the broader lesson here is even if a court hasn't gone through the meticulous process of considering every issue, it's still binding precedent once it's written out on paper, once it's, de uh, once it's decided and it becomes harder – 
to undo uh, because courts like to, in most circumstances, rely on their previous decisions uh, when making new decisions. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's a reminder that uh, the, the court is made up of people and they are imperfect, right? Yes, uh, they are certainly uh, <laughs> they are certainly human beings. Uh, they are also overburdened with hundreds of uh, live cases at any given time. Uh, I like to think that they're paying attention at every single oral argument, um, but they are human beings just like the rest of us. They probably are also distracted on their smartphones, so it happens. <laughs> right, um, right. They are imperfect uh, individuals. Yeah, that's fascinating. All right. Well, we will have a link to that, uh, that tw- actually tweet from uh, Professor Kerr on uh, our show notes. Uh, my story this week, this comes from the folks over at CyberScoop. This is a story written by Suzanne Smalley, uh, and it's titled Spy Report, 3.4 million warrantless searches of U.S. data under FISA last year. Um, so uh, the uh, the federal government puts out a report um, every year that uh, a transparency report um, to kind of tally uh, what has been going on in terms of uh, the warrantless uh, searches under FISA. And uh, this year's report just came out, and um, they said the FBI conducted as many as 3.4 million warrantless searches of U.S. citizens' data last year that the NSA collected. Uh, This is part of the FISA Act. Mm -hmm. Um, Interesting that this is a spike from the previous year, which was at 1.3 million, uh, so went from 1.3 to 3.4. The feds point out that 2 million of the searches stemmed from an investigation of alleged Russian hackers uh, that were part of an attempt to identify and protect victims as opposed to investigate American citizens. Um, is Does that matter, Ben? Like, does that, that just... stuck out to me. I mean, is that supposed to make us feel better? They were still conducting <laughs> these searches, right. uh, and it was still encompassing a lot of U.S. person data, and that's going to happen under Section 702. Yeah. So the purpose of the law is to leverage the fact that most major tech companies exist in the United States. We can use them to gather information on overseas targets. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for all different types of things, international terrorism being one of them, but also whatever the Russians are doing, inevitably some of those overseas targets are going to be communicating with U.S. persons. And if those communications are captured in that dragnet, they go into a database that can be searched without a warrant unless it's part of a predicated criminal investigation. Yeah. So just because it was part of an investigation for something seemingly important, like a Russian hack, it it doesn't necessarily – it doesn't make me feel better because we still have the same number of people uh, or same number of records that have been collected. Whether Mm -hmm. it was for good reasons or not, I think it's the sheer volume that's problematic here. They quote uh, Ashley Gorsky, who is a senior staff attorney at the ACLU – on their national security project. And um, and Ashley Gorsky says, uh, FBI agents are collecting and then searching through Americans' international emails, text messages, and other communications on an enormous scale, all without a warrant. Today's report sheds light on the extent of these unconstitutional backdoor searches and underscores the urgency of the problem. It's past time for Congress to step in to protect Americans' Fourth Amendment rights. So there's your... Um, 
your opposing opinion there. Notable right? quotable. <laughs> right. Two comments there. One, I actually don't like it when civil liberties advocates pin this on agents. Mm. Uh, so I, I find it a little problematic in the first sentence when she says FBI agents are collecting and then searching through Americans' international emails. Uh, this is programmatic. Yes, it is individual agents who are doing the searching. Right. Uh, but this is a policy matter that's been decided by our elected representatives. Mm. That's what she gets out of the second part of the statement here is there is a way to close this loophole and to shut down backdoor searches. It's been proposed a number of times in Congress, and that is require a warrant for any search of uh, the Section 702 database or any database um, that exists due to uh, foreign intelligence surveillance activities. Yeah, uh, Congress has been reluctant to do that. Their compromise in 2017 was to only require a warrant in very specific circumstances. Um, as this article makes clear, we are up for reauthorization at the end of this year, 2022. Uh, so I think there is going to be a robust debate about FISA going forward. Hmm. I will note that intelligence officials um, from the Trump administration, from the Biden administration, basically everybody who's in the leadership of the intelligence community has said Section 702 is the crown jewel of our counterterrorism tools. Mm. Uh, and so it's not going to be an easy fight for people who want to eliminate these backdoor searches, mm -hmm. despite the volume of, of searches that we've seen here. Uh, just because I think when leaders in the intelligence community come in front of Congress and say, don't handicap us, uh, we want to make sure that we have the most important surveillance tools at our disposal to stop bad things from happening. Right. It's hard to say no to that. Yeah, and I can imagine, you know, if you're an elected official, you don't want to be the one who uh, took away the ability to protect ourselves from terrorists or, you know, like that. You could see that being the the opposing uh, candidate's ad, you know, w when it's time for re-election. Right, exactly. Uh, although it's such a niche issue that yeah. in very few circumstances is this ever going to show up in a uh, political advertisement. Mm. Uh, which is kind of funny. Although there was a little snippet at a 2016 Republican uh, presidential debate about surveillance where Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio, who are on opposite sides of uh, the USA Freedom Act, which was a surveillance reform law, fought yeah. about it for 10 minutes. Well, all the other candidates just kind of stood there and uh, <laughs> pretended they were interested. So right. it does come up occasionally. <laughs> right. uh, but this is not fodder for uh, individual advertisements. Uh, one other really interesting aspect of the story, it wasn't mentioned in this article, but in other articles I saw, is there was actually a decrease in traditional FISA searches. Hmm. So the ones where you go to the FISA court to get authorization to surveil U.S. persons who are either foreign powers or agents of, of foreign powers. So we have this increase in records collected under Section 702, which targets foreigners, non-U.S. persons, but we actually have a decrease of uh, FISA court searches, which are designed to target largely U.S. persons. Um, so there are kind of two theories for that that are in var varying levels of plausible, at least from my perspective. The first is because of the pandemic. Uh, <laughs> even the terrorists have stayed home. It was harder to travel to the United States. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> uh, so for bad guys who might have in the past tried to make it into the U.S., um, our borders for much of the past two years have been relatively hard to penetrate yeah. um, because of the pandemic. So that's one theory. Huh. Uh, and then the other is the FBI is submitting fewer requests because there was that Horowitz report 
2019, which analyzed kind of the shoddy process uh, that went into uh, traditional FISA warrants as represented by the Carter Page warrants mm-hmm. and the whole Russiagate uh, investigation. Uh, so I just thought that was another really interesting element to the story. You know, to me, this suffers from kind of the the fog of very large numbers. Like, okay, you know, 3.4 million warrantless searches. The year before, 1.3 million warrantless searches. Like, it's a big number. So hard to conceptualize, well, yeah. But, and also, there's there's really no explanation of what that means. I mean, so let's say there's a, I don't know, a bad guy or gal out there who the FBI is interested in. And they say we're going to collect all of their emails over this period of time, and that and that's two thousand emails. Does that count as two thousand warrantless searches, or does it, or is it one? I don't know. Yeah. Does it? You know. So it, it's sort of it's it's a large number. It's a number that that I think makes us all go whoa, but without really any uh, details, it's hard to know. Is it really a large number? Right. It's so hard to conceptualize. Yeah. I mean, all we know is compared to previous years. Uh, right. So it's been raised compared to previous years. What we might see happen is, let's say we got a report in 2023 that says it's actually decreased. Um, maybe that will really be an indication that there was a large-scale investigation mm-hmm. where they had to collect a bunch of records. If I had to guess, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, yeah. Surveillance programs tend to expand over time, mm-hmm. absent some type of intervening event. And for that, you know, we'd need Congress to step in and make a decision that you need to have a warrant to search the Section 702 database. Yeah. All right. Well, again, this article comes from CyberScoop, uh, written by Suzanne Smalley. We will have a link to that in the show notes. Now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Patrick Sullivan. He's from an organization called Align. And our conversation centers on attempts to modernize HIPAA and uh, the potential for that to affect healthcare. Here's my conversation with Patrick Sullivan. You know, as we think about HIPAA, HIPAA is an acronym for Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, which in 96, when it was signed into law, was exactly what it was intended to provide mechanisms to do, make health insurance portable across providers and across uh, payment systems. You know, originally the focus of HIPAA really centered on information exchange. That was it. Can we get healthcare data from here to here in a meaningful way that doesn't slow down the process of taking care of our patients? 
Now, what we've seen is that as we think about continuous improvement and revelation as time goes on, what we've seen is that over the years, really in two or three year increments, we see modifications, proposals for changes to shore up various areas that we hadn't necessarily considered in the past. In, in other words, early on, shortly after 96, we recognized that though we had made provision to transition data, we hadn't necessarily considered protecting the privacy of that information. And so early 98, 99, we started to see pushes um, really from the top down to implement controls around protecting the privacy of that information as well. So where are the areas where HIPAA is finding itself a little creaky or rough around the edges? Well, and Dave, that's the thing. And Moore's Law, uh, you know, I think Moore's Law plays out outside of technology as well in that the technology is advancing so quickly that regulation just can't keep up. You know, early on, some of the controls, as we mentioned, were implemented to Again, really focusing on protecting privacy and security of information. But what we see is that cycle, that evaluation, review, and revision cycle for regulation and recommendation just can't keep up with the speed with which things change from a technological perspective. So really and truly, across the board, we see opportunities for improvement, which is exactly why the proposal for this new legislation makes so much sense. Well, let's uh, switch gears and talk about that new legislation. Um, we have uh, some senators who have a proposal here. W what are they up to? Uh, so what they are up to is effectively stepping back and saying, let's stop and think about what we really want to create. <laughs> you know, until now, as I mentioned before, we've gone through uh, really increments of the dimming loop where every two or three years we recognize that things need to be done, so we'll bolt on some new mechanism or we'll add on some tangential process that's meant to address some very specific use case. And so there's an old saying where I'm from that a camel is a horse by committee. Mm. Uh, very much we're working with a camel today as it relates to how we think about protecting the security and privacy of uh, patient information. What our senators are proposing is that we take a step back and we think about what we really want to create based on what we know about where the, the market is and where technology is today. So ultimately, their goal isn't to burn everything down to rebuild it from scrap. But if their idea plays out, hopefully that's where we'll end up with new regulation, new recommendation, new guidance to protect the security and privacy of EPHI as it exists today and then into the future. I should mention that this is a bipartisan legislation coming from Senator Bill Cassidy, a Republican from Louisiana, and Tammy Baldwin, who's a Democrat from Wisconsin. Um, are, are there any specifics here that uh, that have caught your eye? Um, well, I think first and foremost, the, the fact that their proposals just make sense. Um, you know, what what they would like to do is really obvious in a lot of ways. You know, as I mentioned before, we've gotten to a place that we have bolted on so many mechanisms to account for things that we just hadn't considered before. Their proposal is that, again, we pump the brakes, we take a step back out of the chaos and think about what we really want to create based on that, based on our evaluation um, driven by Lots of folks that, that actually have skin in this game, have skin in the game of providing patient care very well. 
let's step back. Let's address risk as we know it today in this new world. As we know, the risk today is fundamentally different than what they were seeing in 1996. Let's think about the effectiveness of these requirements that we're proposing as it relates to doing what we really want to do, which is allowing patient autonomy to the extent that we can still ensure that we're protecting the privacy and confidentiality of their data. And then the last big thing that should come as an output from this legislation is recommendations on how to move forward. You know, I think there's a natural assumption that the path forward will include more regulation, What the senators are saying, however, is, look, we need to be open to the idea that maybe the market can drive some of this. Maybe new regulation isn't what's needed, but maybe the market through third-party certification, through other mechanisms, can really help hold itself accountable to doing the right thing and creating what we really want to create. Have you seen any shift in the way that this sort of uh, legislation is approached? I guess what I'm getting at is... um, the recognition that we are in uh, an age of rapid change, as you mentioned, it's hard for any legislation to keep up with the rate of change that we see in technology. So does that uh, affect the way that uh, legislators approach this sort of thing? Do they do they deal more in uh, possibilities rather than specifics because those specifics may change? And I think they have to now, Dave, you know, quite simply. And of course, this is me trying to mind read for the legislators. But Mm -hmm. I think to be effective, they have to consider that we don't necessarily know what we don't know. And so largely, we need to be directionally correct um, with new regulation that's employed, that's that's rolled out uh, across the nation, as opposed to being specifically direct, because specifics change, to your point, so rapidly. that we just can't move quickly enough to stay in front of the changes. Are we at a point where there's agreement on the types of things that we need to see here? Is there agreement on the types of privacy that we need and balancing that with the ability to, and I believe patients desire to have their information you know, flow between their healthcare providers? Sure. And unfortunately, I would say no. <laughs> uh. and, and I would say no because, you know, historically, as we think about patient care from a clinical perspective, th- there have really been two philosophies uh, that we've all dealt with. So the first philosophy is one that I think you and I grew up with, which is something referred to as physician paternalism. Mm. We're in the doctor is right. We don't question. We simply do what the doctor tells us to do as best we can. The second philosophy is something referred to as patient autonomy, wherein the patient is correct and the patient takes ownership of really driving that doctor-patient relationship. So that, the battle of those philosophies, you know, the the cross-purposes, the the goals of those two philosophies have kind of worked their way through the clinical setting and are really bubbling their way up to um, the, the legislative setting today. But, you know, as an example, Um, interoperability and blocking uh, became a a significant portion of uh, the 21st Century Cares Act. In fact, some 2022 changes to the HIPAA privacy rule are are going to have more strict compliance regulations related to the speed with which a provider can release medical records. Now, this generated a lot of news back in 2020 when these proposed changes were first released, generated a lot of pushback from significant players in the game. As an example, Judy Faulkner, the CEO and founder of Epic Systems, came out and said, look, we need to stop and think about what it is we're about to require because the patients, the the people who want to use their own data, 
don't necessarily know what they're getting into. So she took a lot of heat and took a lot of pushback for those comments. But ultimately, her point is, we are rolling out new legislation that's intended to make interoperability easier for everyone. But in doing so, we're not necessarily thinking about the unintended consequences. As an example, one of the rule changes requires that covered entities, those practices that have patient medical records, will have to be able to port that information to a personal health application of the patient's choice. That application has no requirement to carry any sort of certification, no attestation, no security controls in any way, shape, or form. The new legislation is requiring that people that can control and secure the confidentiality of patient data are now being required to shoot it out to anyone who wants to receive it, whether or not that data can maintain um, its confidentiality once it's received. So in a lot of ways, I think common sense still has to be tested. And in a lot of ways, you know, I think we're working through that battle of uh, physician paternalism and patient autonomy. Yeah, that's a really fascinating point. You know, I, it, it seems to me, you know, having come uh, as far as we have with uh, COVID, I've certainly seen that there's a lot of misunderstanding out there on on the part of consumers as to what exactly, you know, HIPAA covers. Uh, and and uh, I don't know, kind of like the First Amendment, uh, you know, some people think, um, you know, the, the HIPAA covers whatever it is that, that they don't like, you know. <laughs> and it's the other. And, it's always the other. Yes. Right, right. And, and it's simply not true. And I, I guess my question is, you know, to what degree um, do we have a responsibility as consumers to be educated as, as to exactly uh, what our obligations are, our responsibilities are when it comes to our own uh, privacy of our healthcare information? And that's a great question, David. And, you know, I, I don't know that I have an answer. I, I do think the, the sister to that question, however, is to what degree may we as a consumer continue to hold accountable providers who give us our own data? In other words, if my provider gives me my personal data at my request and that data is then compromised, whose responsibility is it? You know, those are questions that seem so obvious, the answers to which seem so obvious, but we've not yet thought through. You know, we've not yet created really specific response plans for those scenarios. Do you have any sense for what kind of timeline we might be on with this? To You know, when, when might we expect to see real change here? And so what, what we'll see uh, very likely is a two- to three-year cycle of working through the process, of even getting this legislation passed. Uh, so from there, you know, maybe another two- to three-year cycle of actually walking through the process of understanding what it is we're trying to accomplish. Yeah, I think in the senator's public comment, they make a statement that within six months of selecting their commission, they hope to have feedback ready uh, for Congress. But Dave, I would say even if this is greenlit within the next six months, we're probably still a good four to five years away from seeing any meaningful change. All right, Ben, what do you think? So I think we kind of think of HIPAA as static. It's been a law on the books for almost 40 years now. Mm. But what I got out of the interview is it's actually pretty dynamic. And I think there's a lot of promise in the proposed legislation that he mentioned, the Cassidy-Baldwin bill, mm-hmm. uh, where they would set up a commission to determine some of these data privacy issues. I know people are going to roll their eyes that it's a commission and they're not actually coming up with the rules themselves for 
uh, how, when and, and in which circumstances data can be collected. But I think a commission would be the start. Yeah. Um, so I think there are some promising developments there. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, our thanks to Patrick Sullivan for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>